Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 11. In a moment, we'll read, beginning in verse 19 together. But what a great reminder, what a great prayer that we've just sung to the Lord. Speak, O Lord. Reminder to me that that's our prayer as we gather together this morning, that God would speak through His Word. That this message, this text that we're about to read is a message for us. It's a message for you this morning. That God has cared enough for us and loves us enough to give us His Word. And so we cherish it. And I hope that we're hungry for it. I hope that we want to hear what God's Word has to say to us this morning. And that we are never tired of that. <laughs> we never get enough of that, but we always want more of it that we would get it into our hearts as we sang, take your truth. This is God's truth this morning. We pray that he would plant it deep in us. And that truth would so shape us and form us and mold us and conform us more and more into the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that what you expect? to happen this morning? Is that what you expect to happen when you walk through those doors this morning? I hope that we look forward to it. Even in the times when we walk in here and there's a million other things on our minds, a million other things we could be thinking about, a million other things that would be weighing us down, God's Word would be refreshing to our souls, would bring comfort and encouragement. And that we might be able to lift up our eyes, lift up our eyes away from all of the things that might weigh us down or burden us this morning, but lift up our eyes for a moment to see and behold the glory of God. That's what I believe can happen when you hear God's Word. <laughs> you can behold the glory of God. And my prayer is that every Sunday, when you walk out of those doors, that upon our lips and upon our hearts and upon our minds is the idea of how great is our God. So let's stand as we read God's word together out of honor and respect for his word that he's so graciously given to us. 
This is Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There was one class, one class in junior high that I found to be the most frustrating class. It was art class. Art class. I mean, most people look forward to art class. After sitting through math class and geography and social studies, art class is a breeze class, an easy class. I mean, it's an easy A, right? But I found it at times to be the most frustrating of subjects for this very reason. The art teacher would draw something or make something or mold something, and then, as dutiful students, we were to copy what she had done. She makes a drawing. She paints a painting really quick, right before her eyes, and then says, do what I just did. There was just one problem. I could never do what she just did. It was not that there was no ability. It was there was no talent. <laughs> I would make all the same marks, paint all the same strokes, mold all the same shapes, and the result, disastrous. It looked nothing like the example that I was supposed to follow. It did not resemble the model that was set before me to copy and imitate. The original looked so great, flawless, beautiful. <laughs> I always had great aspirations that once, just once, Maybe some artistry would find its way out of me. Maybe I had it as a recessive gene or something like that that would one day just kind of come out and I would be able to produce something just as lovely. So much so that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between what I made and what the teacher had made. Or maybe even better, that what I made look even better than what the teacher had made. It's 
my fear here that sometimes we can go off course in the church. That we have aspirations to make church better. Oh, I know that the Bible talks about the church, but there is so much more that we can do now. We've advanced so far. Look at all that we've accomplished in 2,000 years since the church began. Certainly we can improve upon it, make it better than it's ever been, make it prettier and stronger, have more streamlined strategies, more surefire campaigns and events to accomplish so much more. Be more relevant today than the church has ever been. So we seek to be an exemplary church. The model church. The example for everyone else. A church that has it all together. A church that serves as an example. So we can say to others, look at what we've done. Look at all that we've accomplished. You should implement everything that, we done, that we've done if you want to see the results in your church. We want to be the church where everybody wants to be. We want to be the it church. Just one problem. In the book of Acts, there was no it church. There was only one church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you knew if you found the it church because that church revolved all around him. We're not trying to be the it church but we are prioritizing the fact that we want to be faithful to Christ first and foremost and faithful to His Word. My great concern today is that we think we can be the exemplary church without Christ. We get so focused on other things, we get distracted by schemes of man and think that we're getting somewhere that we are advancing, that we're moving forward, that we're making a difference. My friends, there is no advancing. There is no moving forward. There is no way to make a difference without Christ. There is no way to be an exemplary church without the exemplar par excellence, our only Lord and Savior, our Rescuer and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This isn't just giving lip service to Jesus. This is saying that Jesus is everything, that He is ours and we are His. This is what we see at the church in Antioch in our verses this morning. It's why they are held up for us in this passage as an exemplary church. A church that should be an example set for us. A desirable model to follow. And this is why we read the book of Acts. We don't read it because it's merely a historical book. Now, maybe there's some things in it that we find interesting. It's not just a book that retells an eventful story. The book of Acts is meant for the church to change the church, to shape and mold the church more and more into what a true church looks like. That we might be more and more what's called the body of Christ. A church that faithfully follows Christ. A church that looks more and more like Jesus. A church that is healthy and growing, not merely in numbers, but in maturity, discernment, and Christ-likeness. It's with this in mind that we look to the church in Antioch as it is birthed and grows right before our very eyes as it is an exemplary church for us to look and see what it takes to be an exemplary church. What is it about this church that should draw us in, that should make us take stock in our church and see if we're following this model, which at its core is dedicated to following the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
So, this morning, four marks of an exemplary church. Four marks of what it means to be an exemplary church. Number one, the exemplary church depends upon the gospel. The exemplary church depends upon the gospel. They say that when you run a marathon, that's running 26.2 miles. I don't say this from experience. I've never done it. But they say, when you are running a marathon, you hit something that's called a wall. It's said that it, this is the point of transition for the runner where it goes from being pretty hard to really, really hard. Now, I think for me that might be 30 seconds into the race. But for the trained runner, they say that happens around mile 20. And it's that intersection where not only are you physically fatigued, but you also have diminished mental faculties. For example, people who have hit the wall can have a hard time even doing the most simple math problem. You know what happens when runners hit the wall? They have one of two options. You guess what those options are? They can keep going or they can quit. Runners talk about breaking through the wall to keep going so that they can finish the race. They have to break through that wall to endure to the end. And we get here to our passage in the book of Acts. It looks like the church has hit Wall after wall after wall after wall. They've experienced difficulties outside of the church. They've experienced difficulties inside of the church. They've experienced persecutions. They've experienced jailings and beatings. And some have even been killed. But the church has broken through each of those walls. Keeps going. And not only does it keep going struggling, limping along. The church goes on flourishing. Amazing. Growing. We're reminded of maybe one of what we would think are, is a wall at the very beginning. Now, there were those scattered because of the person that, persecution that arose over Stephen. Stephen was the very first Christian martyr. With Stephen's trial and ultimate death, there arose great persecution against the church, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. So the Christians are scattered. And we might think that would be the end. The Christians are scattered. That's it. It's over. It's done. This thing that's called the church, well, that might be its end. Or Christians gathered together was a nice idea while it lasted, but it can't go on anymore because they're being scattered all over the area. And these scattered Christians, they began to travel. They traveled to the region, as it says here, of Phoenicia, just north of Israel. Two major cities there of Tyre and Sidon. They traveled to the island of Cyprus, which is about 150 miles off the coast in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. They travel as far as Antioch, even further north into the region of Syria, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. How can this church continue when people are being scattered to all of these regions? How can it go on when people are going every which way and everywhere? How did it keep going? What does it say? They were speaking the word. They kept speaking the word. They kept, that is, telling people the word of God and the gospel. Now, some people were only speaking to Jews. Only telling the gospel message to Jews. And we know from the passages that just precede this, that this message of the gospel is not only for Jews, but it's for Gentiles as well. Gentiles... were brought into the family, heard the message of the gospel, and were saved. So some of these people were speaking only to Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is, Greek-speaking Gentiles. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene was a city in North Africa, came to Antioch. They went to these Gentile people telling them the gospel. And Antioch, just to get our bearings a little bit, Antioch was a major city in the Roman Empire. It's the third biggest city. So you have Rome, you have Alexandria, which is in Africa, and then you have Antioch right behind it. And Antioch serves as a crossroads in the Roman world. So people from everywhere were going through Antioch. So you had a diverse people there living in Antioch. And it was here that people, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, were preaching the Lord Jesus. And one side note, these people who were preaching the Lord Jesus, we don't know their names. I think they were doing this important, necessary work (laughs) And we don't even know their names. That the Lord would use people like that. I think that's the way that it works in God's kingdom. God uses people in great and mighty and powerful ways. We might never know their names. Maybe that's you. Maybe God would use you in a great and mighty and powerful way. But guess what? No one's ever going to know your name. But it doesn't matter, does it? As long as Jesus Christ goes forth and is preached and is known, as long as people are saved, it doesn't matter if your name is known or not. What matters is that Jesus Christ is lifted up and glorified. And that's what these men were doing. They were going to people who had no background for Judaism. They had no idea what had taken place in the life of Jesus Christ, but they went proclaiming a message that people could understand that there is a Lord. Do you see that there? They were preaching the Lord Jesus. That was very crucial to this message because what they were telling the people in Antioch They were saying that there is a king, there is a Lord, there is one who calls for and even demands everyone's allegiance, and his name is not Caesar. No, his name is Jesus. They were preaching the gospel to people in Antioch from all kinds of backgrounds, people from all kinds of ethnicities, people from all kinds of walks of life, various different social classes. The gospel transcends all of those earthly boundaries to get to the heart of what everyone needs to know, to know the Savior who paid the penalty for sin, who alone provides forgiveness and life for all who believe. What happened when the gospel was preached? Success, right? Why? Was it because these people had some great evangelism strategy? Was it because of their excellent oratory skills? Was it because they themselves were so great and so persuasive that they saw success? I don't think so. What was it? Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. That's what it was. It was the hand of the Lord. It was Christ's power and Christ's authority. All these come from His hand that worked through these men who preached the gospel. It was the hand of the Lord that brought success. It was the hand of the Lord that brought salvation. It was because the hand of the Lord was with them that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. How many people would say they want the hand of the Lord upon them? How many churches would say that they want the hand of the Lord upon them? What about us this morning? What would we say as a church? Do we want the hand of the Lord upon us? How many of us, maybe if we're honest, 
would say that the hand of the Lord is too restricting. I have all these great ideas. I have all these slick strategies. I have all of these amazing techniques. How many of us would say that we think the hand of the Lord is too boring? It doesn't bring enough enthusiasm, excitement, emotionalism. How many of us would say the hand of the Lord is too old-fashioned? It just doesn't understand man in the 21st century. Can't compete with man's knowledge, intellect, sophistication, technology. If we want the hand of the Lord upon us, it means we rely solely, depend completely, stand firmly on the gospel of God and hold faithfully to its continual proclamation to everyone. Where does the church go without the hand of the Lord? Nowhere. Or maybe even worse, plunges us into greater darkness. When the hand of the Lord is upon us, it completely reorients lives to live for Christ and for Christ alone. That's what we see here, that it brings about proper response of people's life, or in people's life, of faith and repentance. Or it says here, they believed and turned. Two responses linked together. They're not exactly the same thing, but they go together. People must believe in Jesus. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it's out of this faith and this belief that people turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they repent. Notice this action of turning means that you cannot have it both ways. When you turn from something, you cannot hold on to the very thing that you are turning from. You can't hold on to your sin and at the same time hold on to Christ. No, you let go of the life of sin, the life dedicated and dominated by sin to turn to Christ and to know Him as your Lord, as the one you now follow. You are no longer ruled by the harsh, punishing, destructive taskmaster of sin, but ruled by the loving, gracious, merciful, and compassionate King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is where the church in Antioch began. It began by being dependent upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It began with the good news that God has reconciled sinners to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. The church must depend upon that message. It is the gospel that the Lord uses to bring people to himself. It is his hand that must be with us if we're going to see the gospel make a difference in anyone's life. And we must pray for his hand to be with us. We must depend upon him to use this message, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is this message that we, as the church, have been entrusted with. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That good deposit is the gospel. We guard it because it cannot and must not be changed. We seek to preserve it. We want to proclaim it. We pray the Lord would use it. We depend upon it. We cannot and must not ever think that we need to move on from the gospel, that somehow we've advanced beyond the gospel. It is the gospel by which we have received the message of, of salvation and been transformed. And so, number two, the exemplary church displays God's grace. The exemplary church displays God's grace. If I were to say the word accountability, how might that word hit you this morning? A bad word? We don't need accountability. We need to be free from accountability. 
free from the fear of someone looking over our shoulder, telling us what to do, telling us where we're wrong. But in the church, the idea of accountability is a loving and caring act done out of the good for others. There is a sense that this is what the Jerusalem church does to the church in Antioch. They provide accountability to what's going on there. They've heard the news. It's reached their ears about what the Lord is doing in Antioch. And so the Jerusalem church sends one of their own people to Antioch. And whom do they choose to send? Who better than Barnabas? We were introduced to Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. We remember that Barnabas sold a parcel of land and took the proceeds and gave it all to the church. He was from the island of Cyprus. But remember, Barnabas was his nickname. His given name was Joseph, but the church, after he did that good work, gave him this nickname Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. Who better for the church in Jerusalem to send to the church in Antioch than the son of encouragement as they begin the work there? And so Barnabas travels the 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. He reaches the church. He encounters the church. And what happens when he came to the church? What is it that Barnabas sees when he sees the church? What does it say? He saw the grace of God. How marvelous, how amazing, how great. Praise God, he saw the grace of God. How in the world do you see the grace of God? Right there, among those people in that church, he saw the grace of God. Think about all the things that he could have seen upon reaching the church. He could have seen first many negative things. He could have seen fighting. He could have seen complaining. He could have seen discontentment. He could have seen cold, lifeless, passionless hearts. He could have seen legalism. He could have seen people living any way that they saw fit because they used their freedom as an excuse to feed their sinful flesh. He could have also seen more positive things. He could have seen love. He could have seen compassion. He could have seen good works. He could have seen justice. He could have seen unity. So many things, good or bad, that he could have seen. But what was it? What was the one thing that he was drawn to, that he sees, that covers everything that is done? He sees the grace of God. Have you ever seen it? Would you know if you've seen the grace of God? So how do you see it? The grace of God isn't an object that you can set on a table and say, here, look at the grace of God. You see the grace of God the same way you see the wind. How do you see the wind? You see the leaves rustle. You see the branches sway. You see the fields of grain wave. This is how Barnabas saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God in the lives of the people in the church. He saw the grace of God in the way that people had been changed, in the way that people had been transformed, a complete metamorphosis. He saw it in lives that had been saved by Jesus Christ. He saw it in people where unbelief had once reigned, but now they believed. He saw it in people who once sat in darkness, but now they knew a great light. Barnabas saw the grace of God among those people because these people had a relationship with the one who is the grace of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live soberly, uprightly, and godly lives in this present age. Barnabas was able to see the grace of God in people's lives. That is how it is expressed, in how people live, and how the church interacts with each other, and how the church worships God together. Do you have eyes like Barnabas to see the grace of God? Can you see the evidences of grace in people's life, in the life of this church? 
Do you look for God's grace? And when you find it, do you use it to encourage and build up the church? How about this? When people walk into our church, what would they say they see? When people walk into Grace Bible Fellowship, how disastrous if people come to Grace Bible Fellowship and not see the grace of God. Oh, that the grace of God would be so evident among us that there is no escaping that the grace of God is here. That the grace of God has worked in us and changed us and is continuing to change us and grow us and shape us day by day. That people would say, make no mistake, if you want to see the grace of God, go to that church and you will see the grace of God made plain. And how did Barnabas react when he saw the grace of God in the church? What does it say? He is glad. Gladness fills his heart because of the work that the Lord has done among these people. God's grace makes us glad. It brings joy and rejoicing into our heart. God's, great, uh, God's grace influences our disposition. If you see the grace of God, and like Barnabas, you cherish the grace of God. There's no way that you can walk away with a hard, critical, harsh, resentful heart. No, your heart fills up with gladness because God's grace has worked such an amazing work in the life of sinners. God's grace is bringing dead hearts to life. God's grace has so worked, taking enemies of God and making them into his very own children. And even though Barnabas was glad, he realized that he still needed to encourage and exhort the church. Barnabas didn't walk into the church and say, well, I see the grace of God, and so I'm so glad that you've got it out altogether. There's nothing else that you need. Barnabas doesn't say that, does he? He sees the grace of God, he is glad, and then he says, I need to exhort you. I need to encourage you. I need to tell you something. Remain true, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's what the church needed to hear. And I think we can understand why they needed to hear that because we need to hear the same thing today. Remain faithful to the Lord and to His steadfast purposes. And there's this idea here where it's, there's this resolve in our hearts. Our hearts are resolute to remain faithful to the Lord. We are determined to remain faithful to Him. Resolve had to be in their hearts to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the stakes and whatever the cost. We know why Barnabas said this, because we feel the same tug. We feel the call of this world. We feel the call of our flesh. We know all too well the temptations we face to be unfaithful to the Lord. And to put it in very real and tangible terms, the church in Antioch was located at a hub of pagan worship. In fact, Antioch was often called the abode of the gods. It was a city where Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, Tiki were worshipped. And only a few miles from Antioch was another city, Daphne, which had the temples of Artemis, Apollos, and Astarte. Remember, these people were most likely people who had turned from such pagan worship, who had turned from worshiping idols, 
along with all of the rites, rituals, and practices that went with them. And it could very well have been these things that would have tempted them to be unfaithful to the Lord. And we know this because there are those things that would try to pull us away from the Lord. While there might not be physical idols we are tempted by, there are certainly idols of the heart which attempt to demand our allegiance and our devotion. Remember the grace of God, dear brother and sister. Remember how He saved you. Remember how He rescued you from your sin. Remain faithful to the Lord with resolved heart. Let nothing come between you and Jesus Christ. Guard your heart. There's a reason why Barnabas responded and exhorted the church the way that he did because of who he was, his character. It says that he was a good man. In fact, this is the only time in the book of Acts that someone is called good. What made him good? What made him a good man? How does the world use that word? When the world talks about good people, what does the world usually mean? Is it because they are generally a moral person? Is it because they haven't done anything extremely egregious in their life? Is it because they have given their life to a social cause or served the greater community? How would Luke, the author of the book of Acts, explain what it means to be a good man? He was full of the Spirit the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. Think about it. To be a good person, what is it going to take? It's going to take being full of the Spirit, full of faith. And notice something. Those two things, the Spirit and faith, those are both gifts. <laughs> those are both Gifts that God gives to you. God gives you by His grace, His Holy Spirit. God gives you by His grace, faith. And those are the things that dominated Barnabas' life. They controlled his life. He walked in step with the Spirit. He lived by faith and not by, by sight. And so his response to the church and his exhortation to the church was completely accurate and right because of those two things that filled up his life. If these are the things that fill our life, I wonder how we might see things differently. I wonder how we might respond differently. I wonder how we, we might exhort and encourage one another differently. And I love how Luke describes what's going on here. As this is taking place, kind of gives us a summary statement. A great many people were added to the Lord. People were being saved. God's redemption was flooding into people's lives in Antioch. But think about this for a moment. People who were added, what were they added to? Or whom were they added to? I love this because it reminds us that people were not added to an organization. People were not picking up a hobby called Christianity. People were not joining a club to be a part of. No, people were added to a person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. People now had a relationship with Him. People found faith, repentance, forgiveness, life joy in him people were being united to jesus christ this is what brings the church together it is what unites the church the fact that we belong to christ and that this is the place where god's grace is displayed in our lives the lives of those who have been saved number three the exemplary church diligently makes disciples the exemplary church diligently makes disciples. The church was growing 
it says, we just read many people were coming to know the Lord in Antioch, and so there was this boom of people. And they had to be ready for what was going to take place. I don't know, maybe you've had a, a get-together with people, a dinner party, and there's some unexpected guests who show up at the dinner party, and you have to try to figure out how to accommodate them, how to help them, how, how to feed them. This is going on in the church. They're, they're expanding, and now they need to make disciples here with these people, but Barnabas realizes he can't do it all himself. So he goes to Tarsus. He finds a man named Saul. Saul, who once was a persecutor of the church. Saul, who had been converted by Christ there on the road to Damascus. Who now went and was teaching Jesus Christ. After he was converted, he went to, he went to uh, Damascus, was preaching Christ there. He went to Jerusalem, was preaching Christ there. But his life was threatened, so he went to Tarsus. Barnabas goes there and finds Saul and says, Saul, I need your help. There's a lot of work to be done in Antioch. And so Saul goes with Barnabas to Antioch, and it says that they teach the people for one year. So here are these people that are gathered together, and Barnabas and Saul are teaching them the Word of God. And what are they doing? They're making disciples. These people needed to know the truth. They needed to know doctrine, right doctrine, true doctrine that was absolutely vital to the health of the church. It is sound doctrine that truly changes people from the heart outward. It is sound doctrine that convicts and convinces true believers of how they are supposed to live their lives. And here I think that we see Saul and Barnabas doing what Jesus told his disciples to do, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20. And so Saul and Barnabas are there. and They're making disciples. They're building up the church. They're teaching the church. Barnabas recognized that discipleship had to happen in the church in order for the church to thrive and be a bright light in such a dark and pagan city. The church must be diligent in making disciples. We must press forward in this. We must see it as an absolute necessity in the church. Making disciples is not optional. It's not for the professionals. Saul and Barnabas only taught for a year, but that does not mean that the work was done. It would continue as people grew in maturity and understanding and leadership. And there's something very interesting that happens here. At the end of verse 26, it says this, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Tells us something. Tells us that first, the Christians were gaining their own identity. They weren't just another sect of Judaism. They weren't just some Jewish group, but now they have their own identity as Christians, they're known as little Christs, that's what Christian means. But it also showed something else. People think that this term Christians was used by many people who were outside the church as a derogative term. But it becomes something of a badge of honor because Christians means that we are devoted to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance has been pledged to Him. What greater way to be known than to be known as one who is Christ's? We're not ashamed to be called Christ's people. We are not ashamed that we have pledged our allegiance to Him. In fact, what a privilege it is to be so closely associated with the one who is our Lord and Savior. And as we make disciples... We are growing in our understanding of what it means to bear the name of Christ and to know the honor and the joy that it is to bear His name. Finally, number four, the exemplary church determines to give generously. The exemplary church determines to give generously. In the last paragraph of Acts 11, we see 
an important action taken by the church. We've already been given a helpful model, some very important truths to follow as we look at how the Lord led the Antioch church. But this last section, I think, pushes us just a little bit further. There is even more stretching that must take place because we see again the grace of God. We see the gospel being front and center in the action and the good works that's done by the church in Antioch. So what happens? Think about this. Prophets come down from Jerusalem, come down in the sense of elevation. Jerusalem is on a mountain, so they're coming down even though they're traveling north from Jerusalem to Antioch. The prophets were known for telling forth the word of God, but also here we see this action of foretelling by the word of God. So one man named Agabus foretold by the Spirit. This isn't just his guess or a hunch that he has. This was the Holy Spirit working in him, giving him this information. The Spirit is at work, and so Agabus relays that there would be a great famine over all the world. Luke notes that this would happen in the days of Claudius, which takes place between the years of 45 and 47 A.D. And when Agabus says over the whole world, most likely there he means over the whole known world or over the whole Roman Empire. And I want us to meditate just for a moment on what the church hears and I want us for a moment to hear what the church in Antioch would have heard with the prophecy of Agabus. There was going to be a famine. That means there's going to be a lack of food and a lack of resources. People's lives are going to be threatened by this famine. People might face great hunger or starvation. And here's what they're hearing. You are about to enter a very dangerous time. And this famine is going to happen over the whole world. There's no place that you're going to be able to go to escape it. This disaster is coming your way. It's about to challenge the way that you live. It's going to threaten your family. It's going to be a time of great difficulty that you are going to face. Difficulty that's going to surround your very own survival and existence. How would you respond? We need to gather all of our resources, all of our food. We need to hunker down, batten down the hatches, prepare for the worst. We need to be to make sure, to be determined that we've done everything, all that we can do to prepare ourselves in the face of this danger, to do everything we can to try to eliminate the uncertainty of what we might face, ensure that we have everything that we need in order to live. But what does a church in Antioch do? It says that they were determined. Nothing was going to stand in their way. Nothing was going to stop them. Nothing was going to hold them back. But what were they determined to do? They were determined to give. To send relief. To send help. To provide. To care for Christians living in Judea. Living in Jerusalem. And everyone gave according to their ability. Notice there is no parameter forced upon the people by the church or the leaders. It was not, you have to give so much. It was not that. It was people giving from their hearts, and they wanted to give, and they asked this question. How much am I able to give? And they gave. There's a famine coming your way. It's going to threaten your very lives. Good. Who can we support? Who can we give generously to? Who can we minister to and love with the love of Jesus Christ? When danger came, it wasn't time for them to care about themselves, to look in on themselves, to gaze at their own navels. It was a time to look out to those in need and give generously. This kind of thinking is completely contrary to how we naturally think and act. But that is what Christ does in our hearts. And that is how the church in Antioch, this new, fresh, 
church just started sends love and ministers to the heart of those in an area where the church first started. And the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch shared this love. The church in Jerusalem heard about Antioch. They sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement, I believe in love. And now what does the church in Antioch do? They send support. They send relief. They help how they can, the church in Jerusalem, in love. Why would the church ever do such a thing? Why would we ever do such a thing? Why would we give so generously? What is it that pushes us out to give rather than hoard it all for ourselves. I think it's one thing in particular. It's this. It's the generosity of Jesus Christ towards us. Listen to Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, man, of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now go back. Have this mind among yourselves. Do you know the generosity of Jesus Christ? Do you know the generosity of Christ who left the glory of heaven and perfect fellowship with the Father? Do you know the generosity of Christ who clothed himself with flesh and became fully man with the human nature? Do you know the generosity of Christ who faced the same temptations we face yet did not sin? Do you know the generosity of Christ who for the joy before him went to the cross bearing our sin and our guilt and our shame to die the death that we deserved? Do you know the generosity of Christ who rose again from the dead to give light and life to all those who believe on him, who would forgive to the uttermost those who come to him so their sins will no longer be counted against them. Do you know the generosity of Christ where now he clothes you with his own righteousness? It's not your own righteousness that makes you acceptable to God. It is his righteousness. Do you know the generosity of Christ who has ascended into heaven and now ever lives to make intercession for us before the throne of God? Do you know the generosity of Christ who has gone away for a time so that he might send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us and work in us and through us? Do you know the generosity of Christ who has proclaimed, I go to prepare a place for you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. How generous, how generous is Christ to us. And how wicked of us to ever accuse Christ of anything else than generosity, of being stingy, of being a cheapskate, of somehow holding something good from us. He gave himself for us. He died for us. And how might our generosity tell other people about the generosity of Jesus Christ toward us? If you don't know the generosity of Christ, it's because of one simple reason. You don't know Christ. But the good news today is that you can know Christ. You can, the call today is for you to come to him, to put your faith in him, and the work he has accomplished on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, and you can repent of your sin and ask for his forgiveness, and you will not be turned away, but all who come to him are received by him. There is grace, amazing grace, God's grace, 
there to be poured out upon you and make you new and make you whole in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that this would be a place where your grace is made plain to all. It's a place where we see the grace of God, that there is no denying the grace of God is here. The grace of God is working, that it's among us. And that we might learn from these principles from the church of Antioch of what it means to be an exemplary church. and That we would see that it all revolves around our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the message of salvation. Let us not be distracted. Let us not lose course from being the church you want us to be. And help us day by day, to live by grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.